starting at verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Well, before I begin, how about I pray, ask God to open up this part of Scripture for us, uh, that he may change us through it. Father, speak to us this morning. Please reveal our hearts, help us to see ourselves for who we really are, but more importantly, for who we are in you. And Lord, we pray this for the sake of your Son and your glory. Amen. Well, people love transformations, right? Seeing incredible transformations, perhaps maybe through uh, mass weight loss. You see the before and after pictures and your minds are a bit blown away. Uh, transformations of, of character even. Perhaps someone who has had a lifelong addiction to drugs or alcohol is now kicked the habit and you see who they are afterwards. And again, your mind is blown. People staying on the straight and narrow, these sorts of transformations are incredible. There's a sense in which collectively as humanity we celebrate these sorts of things as it shows someone overcoming seemingly insurmountable odds. Now in today's passage we see a transformation that is so great, so much greater than all of these that it was in fact impossible to achieve. But by God's grace we can look back and appreciate the kindness and love and the power of God through what he has achieved for us in Jesus. In today's passage in particular, Paul, in his transformation here, contrasts the old self with a new self, encouraging us to remember who we were, as well as encouraging us to remember now who we are in Christ. Moreover, he does this in order to help us understand the full transformation God has achieved in us, a new humanity, a new creation, which we'll see next week. But in this, we get a hint of who we were to kind of heighten who we now are in Jesus. So to kind of pull the punchline out first, if you go all the way down to verse 10, we get this reference to us being God's handiwork in the NIV. Uh, some of yours might say workmanship. Uh, literally, the word, I think, is best translated creation, right? We are God's creation. In fact, from the original language, the word poem in, in English has its roots from this word. Now, this, it has caused some to overinterpret this, I think, as a, calling us a work of art or God's, we are God's poem. And I wouldn't personally take it that far, but I do think there is some truth in this, that Paul is laying the foundation here to consider us his creation, kind of his work. And he expands upon this in, in the rest of chapter 2, but we'll see that next week. 
But the reason I raise this is because we need to see that there is a transformation that God is doing in us here. There's a transformation from the old order of things, which I think arguably stems all the way back to our father Adam and Eve, uh, into a new order inherited by God himself by grace. And so just to give you a couple of points to highlight this, uh, Paul says that our old self, we followed Satan or the ruler of the kingdom of the air, just like Adam and Eve did in the garden. He says that we gratified our old self, uh, the cravings of our flesh in verse 3, just as Adam and Eve did when they saw the fruit was good for food and pleasing to the eye. We see that our old self, we followed its desires, just like Adam and Eve did when they saw the fruit and saw that it was desirable for gaining wisdom. These are deliberate allusions to the old order of things, the old creation, stained by sin under the rule of Satan, which we used to walk in, to help us contrast what God is doing in us as his new creation, his handiwork in verse 10. In contrasting this, we see things like we are now made alive, we are now raised up, we are now seated in the heavenly realms under the rule of King Jesus. But before we get to that end, which is in sight, we mustn't forget who we were. And so this brings us to the first point, if you're following along, uh, remember who you were, dead in your transgressions and sins. It's a wonderful first point on Mother's Day. Well, C.S. Lewis, he wrote a book called Mere Christianity, and in this, he wrote this. He said, a man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. In other words, to understand that something is crooked, you need to have some idea or concept of the thing that is straight. But the same could be said with Paul's emphasis on our transformation here in Ephesians 2, that that a crooked line actually emphasizes just how straight the straight line actually is, or vice versa. And so Paul, initially, he wants us to understand who we were first in our crookedness. And so he opens the chapter in this cheerful way. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now, this is pretty heavy. And Paul, he could have left it here. We kind of feel the weight of that. If you just sit and meditate on that one verse, you kind of sink into your chair a bit. But Paul doesn't. He continues. Well, actually, I want to show you what he could have done. This is my sort of rendition of the passage here. He could have left it and skipped all the way down to verse 6, and it would have read, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, but God raised you up with Christ Jesus and seated us in the heavenly realms. Right, he could have gotten rid of all those middle bits there, got out the uh, correction fluid, the eraser, you know, maybe got the first draft of his letters, crunched it up and thrown it in the bin, and the logic still would have flown. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, but God raised you up. But Paul being Paul, he doesn't do this. Uh, instead of leaving us here, kind of like the awkward uncle who says something offensive and then instead of just jumping out while he can, he digs further and further down, Paul wants to continue this to make the bad news exceptionally bad, to make it as crystal clear as possible so that we never, ever forget who we once were. Firstly, he says that we used to follow the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, which is just another way of saying Satan. Um, if you're interested in, in some ancient cosmology, they thought that all the demons occupied kind of the atmosphere, the sky above us, and so the ruler of the demons is effectively Satan. 
Um, and in the context of Ephesians, you know that they were into witchcraft and occult practice and, thing, and things like that. So he was just addressing them in terms they understood. So they followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And he says, in doing these things, that we gratified the cravings of our flesh and followed its desires and thoughts. Again, just kind of like Adam and Eve did. And ultimately, because of this, because of our rejection of God and all of this, we were by nature deserving of God's wrath. And what I find most interesting about this is that Paul's summary here of our life outside of Jesus is that I think this reflects today's culture 2,000 years later with a frightening clarity. You see, our culture today, it insists that you follow the desires of your heart. And this is particularly the case right now when we speak about the topics of gender and sexuality. Even our younger ones, even in, in school, they're encouraged to experiment, to mess around with this stuff, to follow whatever feelings they have on the inside. And even more terrifying than this, to shut out anyone who would compromise that, anyone who would speak into that. This attitude that, that you are the most sovereign and supreme ruler of your own life, we not only inherited this from Adam and Eve, but this is what Paul calls the ways of the world. It's kind of the, the new natural order of things prior to Christ. These are the things that gratify the desires of the flesh. And this attitude, the reason it is so toxic is because it dethrones Jesus. It places the crown on our own heads, despite the fact that we don't actually know what's best for us. And often when we go down the path thinking that way, it only leads to more misery and destruction. For us to, to put the crown on our own heads and say we are the king of our lives and we can determine this or that, um, the only analogy I can think of is, is like a mechanic going to a midwife and telling her how to do a job. Right? It doesn't make any sense and you can only imagine the chaos that would ensue. And yet so often we do this and we end up complicating our own lives even further. In fact, we're so far down this path in the 21st century that whatever you feel in your heart, that feeling, according to the world, is sovereign and should never, ever be questioned. And this is the attitude that's being drip-fed through social media to our younger ones in really powerful and dangerous ways. Uh, if you have a Netflix subscription and you know any of their originals, they're doing the same thing to us. We're being told that we are the kings of our own lives and we can do whatever we want. Our culture tells us in that light that we should gratify the desires and the cravings of our flesh. And yet Paul here is saying, no, absolutely not. That these things, following the desires of the world, gratifying the cravings of the flesh, only honour the ruler of this world, Satan. But worse than this is Paul heightens this, uh, highlights this, sorry, saying the reason, this is the reason that we were by nature deserving of God's wrath. By doing all these things, it meant that naturally we should be the recipients of God's wrath. We had rejected him, we told him to get lost, and so we naturally have this coming. Paul's saying as well that, that by doing this, we'd even severed our connection to our life support. Why? Because by doing this, we'd rejected the giver of life himself. See, as soon as you realize that God is the source of life, again, go back to Adam and Eve. He is the one that breathed life into them. What do you think will happen when you cut him off? But Paul says that we did just this, that we were dead 
in our transgressions and sins. We'd cut ourselves off from life because the very definition and source of life itself you had rejected. And Paul argues then that this makes you dead, makes you lifeless, on a slab, cold, unable to move. Now, some of you might be thinking, are you sure about this, Steve? I mean, we're here today, we're sitting, it seems very much alive. I'm not preaching to kind of a room full of zombies or anything like that. But again, we go back to Genesis 3. God's warning to Adam and Eve is if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they will surely what? They will surely die. And if you know the story, you know that they didn't eat the apple and, and like Snow White, just drop dead on the spot. Uh, there wasn't a, a thunderbolt that kind of launched out of the sky and hit them and killed them right there and then. Rather, they became spiritually dead. That is, separated from their source of life, from their life support, which eventually did lead to their physical death. In other words, spiritual death and physical death, they do actually go hand in hand in some respect. One leads us to the other. Now, this idea, it's kind of offensive, uh, especially here in Australia, in a country uh, where so many people have made their stories by you know, putting in the hard yards, the idea of lifting yourself up by your bootstraps. Uh, in fact, we love the good story of the battler who overcame all the odds. But when it comes to our salvation, Paul says that, if you don't grasp your own hopelessness, right, your own total depravity, then you won't understand or even appreciate the gift that God has given us in Jesus, the grace that he has shown to us. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, one of my favorite theologians, he said this. He said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. And so this is the first step. Right? The first point to have securely in the back of your minds, you must remember who you were, dead in your transgressions and sins. You can't reach out to God, you're lifeless. You can't make any choices, you are completely dead. And once we get this, then it heightens everything else that follows in Paul's letter here. And this takes us to the second point. Remember who you are, alive, raised up, seated in heaven. So to go back to C.S. Lewis's analogy, <clears throat> we've seen the, the crooked line. Now it's time to look at the straight. And Paul begins this section with two powerful words. He says, but God. Now, what I think is really unfortunate is the NIV separates these two words. It begins verse 4 with but, and then it throws God somewhere further down. Literally, it's right next to itself. Whenever the Bible does this, it's a big signal that something huge is about to happen. When we see the words but God, a massive change is going to occur. And I think in many ways, if someone asks you, what is the Bible about? What is the kind of overarching story of the Bible? These two words sum it up pretty well. They sum up the contrast between the crooked and the straight. They sum up the contrast between us deserving of God's wrath, but God having mercy on us. I'll pull up a, a slew of verses here. They sum up this, that, that we were dead in our transgressions and sins, but God made us alive with Christ. That we were enslaved by the world and the evil powers at work within it, but God 
has now seated us in the heavenly realms. There is a stark contrast here, and the link between them is God's work, his action. And so these two words, they change everything. It places all the hard work, places all the glory back to God for our salvation. Right? All of it, not just most of it, all of it. Being made spiritually alive, this is God's work. Being raised up, this is God's work. Being seated in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus, this is God's work. It is all him. In fact, it is so much of God's work that in verses 8 to 10, Paul goes on to say that there is absolutely no room for boasting in the Christian life. None whatsoever. In fact, even your good works that you do have been prepared in advance for you to do. Paul wants to make it absolutely clear that any good coming from you, any at all, has its origins in God. Now, in some ways, this is a bit of a hard concept to grasp uh, because, once again, to kind of bring it back to our modern culture in Australia, uh, many of us really are self-sufficient. We, we strive to be independent. We don't like to ask other people for help. Our lives, at least from our perspective, they're completely the product of our own choices and our own doing. Some make wise choices, some make foolish choices. And we especially make this case if we consider our lives to be, quote-unquote, successful, whatever successful means, whatever metrics you want to apply to that. But if I were to push further, I suspect that this attitude as well, it stems into our understanding of what it means to be a good Christian. Right, we give ourselves so much room for comparison in the Christian life that you can hardly have a gathering of God's people on Sunday without people putting themselves up a few notches, knocking others down a few notches and comparing where they are with everybody else in the room. We do this so often and, and so frequently, uh, it's not even funny. We watch other Christians, for example, making foolish choices and we, we scoff and we kind of pride in the fact that, thank goodness, we're not like that. Perhaps we read our Bibles regularly and we pray regularly and we encourage each other to do that. But by doing this, sometimes we think, gee, you know, I'm, I'm a good Christian. It's, I've got a cruisy life because I'm doing all the right things for God. You know, he's very, very lucky to have me. But Paul says, no. You are saved by grace alone. And your good works, well, they themselves have been prepared in advance for you to do as well. You have zero grounds for boasting. Now, if you look carefully, some of you might be reading a passage and you might be thinking to yourselves, but what about faith, right? Is, isn't faith something that I do? Isn't that something that I contribute to my salvation? Isn't that what makes me special? Isn't that what separates me from the unbeliever and so on? But Paul even covers this base. He says that even your faith, this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. That is, your faith is not even something you can produce on your own. Your faith in Jesus is something that is gifted to you by the Holy Spirit. Now, for some of you, this probably raises some tricky questions. You know, if, if even our faith is a gift from God, then how are we saved? Right? Isn't God unjust then at choosing some and, and not others? Why would he save me, but not my family or my friends? But I think to get too bogged down in these questions, it, it completely misses the point. Because the fact that anyone is saved at all demonstrates the kindness and the mercy of God. 
I think perhaps another way to think about it that might help you in this is to think, think through this question, who is responsible for your salvation? Who, who do you think is responsible for your salvation? You know, do you wake up in the morning and in your prayers go, dear God, thank you that I chose you. Thank you that I had it within me to pull myself out of darkness and follow you. Or do you pray, thank you, God, that you had mercy on me, a sinner. That though I was dead in my transgressions, unable to do anything, you raised me up. You chose me. And I suspect when we put it that way, when we think about how we give thanks to God for our salvation, when we look back in our lives, we suddenly realize that our salvation, like anybody else's, is entirely God's work within us. That even our faith is the gift from God, the work of his Holy Spirit. But one last set of questions arises. How does good works fit into this? How does this idea of doing good works uh, fit within this understanding? And so to wrap up, I want to take us through our third point here. Uh, Remember what you are to do, good works which God prepared for us to do. Now, this final verse, it's not just a postscript or anything. It's not just tacked on the end. It's not Paul's way of going, oh, I forgot about this. Let's throw it on there. This is actually the the summation of everything we've had in verses 1 to 9. You see, this points us in many ways to the purpose of salvation, the purpose of God's work within us. That is doing good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Now, it's important to note that that good works, they're, they're never to secure salvation ever. We don't ever use our good works as some kind of credit to get into heaven. Uh, We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And our good works, well, they're the natural outcome of this salvation, right? This is what we do once we've been saved already. I want you to imagine this scenario. This this might help us. You're in an ocean, right? You're surrounded by sharks. You're, You're bobbing up and down. You've gone days without food or water. You're struggling to keep your head above the waterline. You're moments from death. And then all of a sudden on the horizon, a fishing trawler appears. It sides up to you, and as you're looking up at this large boat, a life ring is thrown over the edge. As they pull you in, you realize that you're even too weak to pull yourself over the railing on the side of the boat, so they help you with that too. The people on the boat, they wrap you in a warm blanket, they feed you, they give you the stuff that you need to drink, water, they they rehydrate you, they put you back on land, and they even check you into a hospital. Not only this, but they regularly visit you in hospital just to make sure that you've got everything that you need. Now, this is such a success story that that the local news news station wants to interview you. They want to hear about your near-death experience. But instead of praising the efforts of the one who saved you, imagine you begin to boast about your inner strength, you know, how you fought off the sharks and eventually saved yourself. I think we all know this scenario would be absolutely absurd, to say the least. It would be a complete slap in the face to the ones that saved you. But I think in real life, often the opposite is the case, right? You hear of many who have had near-death experiences and they often feel indebted to themselves to change their habits, to change their life choices as a result of the experience or indebted to the person that saved them. 
And occasionally, lifelong friendships emerge from this kind of stuff. And so when it comes to our salvation, the natural outcome should be a desire to change our habits, to love and to serve our Savior because of what he has done for us. But these good works, even they fit under this category of God's grace. As if salvation wasn't enough, God lavishes on us so much more that in Ephesians 10, he, he prepares, 8, 9, 10, sorry, he prepares good works for us to do. And he prepares them well in advance for us to do them. Even works we are going to do later on today, next week, years into the future, God has prepared them for us, every single one of them. Because you see, we are God's handiwork or his creation. He is the one that is molding us and changing us, causing us to do these things. Which means that his transformation is much, much bigger than perhaps we may have first thought. You see, he's already built the road of good works for us to walk in. And this is just one more reason that we have nothing left to boast about. So my encouragement to you, particularly if you're feeling a bit flat this morning, I know some people, they, they wrestle with this question of how can God use me? Like, I'm so broken. I see the works of someone else. I'm not even doing a tenth of what they're doing. Right? How, how could God actually use me, this weak, blunt instrument, to bring about his purposes. And my encouragement to you this morning is that his grace is sufficient. That's what this whole passage is all about. All about grace and undeserved merit that he is working within you. I want you to reflect upon this. Reflect upon the power that is at work within you. As Paul prayed in chapter 1, right? The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is now at work within you. And if you're still not convinced, consider the mighty power of our God, who is the perfect master builder, who can use you, kind of a broken hammer or a blunt saw or whatever it is you consider yourself to be, to build the perfect house. Like me and you, God can use all of us, no matter how broken we are, to accomplish his purposes. We all have a spot in God's plan which brings glory to him as he works through us, despite our personal failures. So as we consider all these things, I want to wrap up this morning by lifting this morning to God in prayer. I think it's very important. Uh, some of the big ideas we've seen this morning uh, do sink in, uh, particularly as we go about the rest of our week. Um, I don't want us to walk away this morning and go, well, that was nice, that's good, God's grace, excellent. I want us to really think about this and use this in our week, where we feel like we can't do anything for God, God can work through us by his grace. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, wherever we are at this morning, please be at work in our lives. Lord, may your spirit transform us as we reflect upon the incomparable riches of your grace towards us in Jesus. Lord, may we not leave this building unchanged this morning, but rather be filled with hope and joy in your character. And Lord, give us the strength we need this week to walk in the works you've prepared for us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.